وأنت تجل الحزم إذا شئت سهلا اللهم أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته ما شاء الله so okay um, there's a couple of things actually uh, that we're at the section of entering into the washing of the two hands غسل اليدين uh, but before we, we do that, and maybe we, we maybe not even get to that, uh, I don't know, Allah There's two things that I thought I would uh, go back uh, due to the amount of questions concerning uh, it, and also because I think it's uh, I think it's beneficial. I think it's really useful because, um, well, I, I'll explain why I think it's beneficial. Are you ready with your iPad? Uh, yeah. So the, the the first one was with respect to the definition of fard, and I think I discussed that last week. That there's still this confusion over the idea of fard and wajib and rukan and this and that. And I actually spent a portion of last week's session explaining that we shouldn't be confused about that. The word fard means obligatory. Okay. Uh, in the Hanafi school, they have differentiated between the two. Okay between the word fard and wajib, both which linguistically mean obligatory, okay? Even in the Hanafi school, they will not say that the word wajib does not translate into obligatory. But what they will say is that technically its consequence is something different to the consequence of fard. And I went into in immense detail explaining that. And the evidence is for Imam Abu Hanifa and the madhab uh, on that, alihi rahmatullah. So, uh, um, so it's important just from a technical point of view that those who are Hanafis and are studying this text that they are, are know and are aware that when the word fard is being used and the word wajib is being used, they are synonymous. And they are synonymous with the three imams uh, of the three madhabs and the mass majority of the scholars. Okay? The mass majority of the ulama, they consider the word wajib and fard to mean obligatory. So that's point one. But I think... That I want to spend more time on this from a hadith point of view, and I think it will be beneficial. So I'll come to that in a second. The second point that I wanted to clarify is this idea of arkan. Now remember, okay, um, we haven't covered the word arkan because frankly, we haven't come across an act of worship yet which necessitates the use of the word arkan. The word arkan is the plural of the word rukan. The word rukan means a it means a corner actually all right it means a a corner or a pillar the connotation being a key aspect of a structure key aspect and a corner of course is a key uh, key uh, 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 part of a structure because without it it would collapse whether it's only being used in a corner sense or whether it's being used in a pillar sense and the idea would be to think of a stool a three-legged stool okay if you have a three-legged stool and it has three legs and you take one away, the entire stool collapses. Okay? So, um, let's look at this stool. This stool can only represent certain acts of worship. It cannot represent wudu. And I'll explain why later. But it can represent salah. The reason that the stool can represent the acts of salah is because the act of salah has so many various layers of action or levels of action that we can represent it quite easily in a stool. So let's use this illustration in your mind. Imagine you have this nice looking stool. Okay? Nice looking stool. 
it has a number of aspects. The niceness will come due to its general structure, solidity, varnish, and the color of that varnish. The concept of a quality stool is that it is functional as a stool. You can actually sit upon it, okay? Um, and you can sit upon it in comfort. Let's imagine this stool has something which is, uh, imagine you have a stool which has three legs, and then it has a, a frame, and then on the frame then is a piece of, flat piece of wood, which is well sanded and very smooth and, and is varnished, and you sit on that. So it's solid as well, and it's known to be a stool because when you see some key aspects, you identify it as a stool. The varnish does not identify the stool. The color does not identify the stool. The legs identify the stool, and the seating part identifies the stool. So, the, so we can say that the, to be a stool, the seated part, the, 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 the plank, the seat, is more important than the varnish. Because the varnish just adds beautification, right? Whereas it doesn't add functionality. Whereas if we didn't have the seating part, it couldn't be possibly called a stool, it couldn't be used as a stool. Yet, the seating part is not as essential to the concept of the stool as the leg is. Because if you were to take one of the legs away, it can't even stand. Meaning that if I was to take the, the, the plank away, the seat, what you still have is a frame. And uncomfortably, admittedly, you could still sit on that stool. Do you understand what I'm saying? You could still sit on that stool. You'd position yourself, you know, like uh, at, at an angle and use the fork, use the, use the frame or whatever it is. And obviously it'd be painful, but you could still sit on it. If you looked at it uh, over there, you'd say it's a broken stool. I can fix this easily. I'd fix it by, by putting the, 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 the plank back on. But it's still alive. It's still stool. It's not broken to pieces. Take away the leg though, and it collapses. It's completely useless. Yes, we can fix it. But if you have a legless stool, it's on the floor. It's in pieces. You're not going to give it the same kind of level of this is repairable as if you just saw the, the seat missing. Is that all clear? Now imagine that's an act of worship. Okay? Or, or we, the, the act of worship is being used like, a, like the prayer. The prayer consists of at least three different levels of action. Those which are essential, which are the legs of the stool. Those which are obligatory, all right, which are the essential aspects of the stool, like the seat. And those which are the sunnah, the beautification and the excellence, and those little acts which perfect the stool. That's the shaving down, the smoothing, the coloring, the varnish, and so on and so forth. Okay? That is the exact similitude of a stool compared to an act of worship. And so therefore, we call the essential aspects, the legs, we call them ruken or arkan. So the ruken is singular, plural, arkan. We call the seat because it's so important, wajib or the wajibat, the obligatory aspects. You can call them fard as well, no problem, okay? But this is according to the majority of the scholars, as I said, we're using majority terminology here. And you'd call the beautification aspects the sunan, okay? And as I mentioned last week, if we were to go with some of the scholars, they would even, for example, let's say that this stool had a little bit of a leather kind of thing going down, I don't know, a few kind of flexes here. We could then say hay'at or adab, which is a fourth level of tahsiniyat or ihsan, which some of the Shafi'i scholars like to introduce some of the kind of above and beyond necessary luxuries, the beautifications, taking to another, le another level. And this is... This, is, um, this obviously is a human example. It's a poor example of trying to uh, illustrate something. But at least gives you an idea. 
So the prayer, it needs to be able to be divided into essentials, obligations, and recommended acts. Okay? That is the three different things. The essentials, absolutely essential to the prayer. That's what are the essentials. Those are the arkan. The obligations, they're absolutely obligatory. But you know what? The prayer could survive without it if we can make up for it at the end. Okay? And in the prayer example, that would be, for example, when you say Allahu Akbar when you go to sajda. Or when you, or the first tashahud, at-tahiyyat lillah. The first tashahud. These are examples of obligations in the prayer. If you were to miss them out, you would continue praying. The prayer is not fatally wounded by that. At the end, we'll do two sajda sahum and we'll make up for it. But if we go back to the arkan, essentials, well, an essential according to the three imams would be, for example, reciting Fatiha. Or actually, let's be more fundamental. According to all of the imams, to stand whilst praying. Okay? That's it, as long as you're able to. If you, as long as you're fit, young, able, you know, no problems, then you have to stand. If you didn't stand in your prayer, or if you never did the first sajda, or if you never did the, the ruku'ah, or if you never did the uh, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah once, or you never said uh, the tashahud at all at the end. These are essentials of the prayer. If you didn't do it, you'd have to actually stop what you're doing and go back and do it there and then. Because the prayer cannot move ahead until you've gone back and sorted it. And you'd have to compensate for it at the end with a compensatory sajda, the sajda sahub. Okay? So you can see there's a difference between essentials, arkan, and then obligations. And then the sunnah are those things that if you do it, that is great. You increase the reward of the prayer, like reciting a surah, like reciting after Fatiha, like reciting Tasbih Subhan Rabbil Adim 15 times as opposed to just once or three. You understand? These are additional aspects, more dua that you add when you say Samiyallahu Alaihi Hamida, Hamdan Kathiran, Tayyiban, Warakan, etc., etc., extra dua. If you do it, great. If you don't do it, no problem. You just didn't make the chair, the stool look as great as, as it could. That is the understanding of the words and the concepts of arkan and obligations and sunan when the act of worship can be divided so. But sometimes the act of worship that you have in front of you cannot be divided into that many contexts or layers, such as wudu. Wudu is not possible to have three or four layers of, of legal category. We can only really have two. Those which are obligatory and those which are recommended. And it's for that reason that because it's only an obligatory category and a recommended, then the scholars were lackadaisical here. They didn't really kind of bother. Uh, they were ambivalent. You know, whether you want to call these obligations obligations, whether you want to call them essentials or arkan, it doesn't really matter here because you know what? We don't need to create two different categories. There's no compensatory sajda to be made at the end if you make a mistake. There's no difference between an essential and obligation. They're the same thing in the act of wudu. In the act of wudu. And this will apply to other acts of worship as well. So that should answer hopefully the reason why people were confused. The why is it that arkan is being used in the word, in the way of wajib, etc., etc., etc. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. So moving on, we throughout this class and throughout this book, and it's a humbly book. Okay, we will be using when we say the word fard or wajib, we will always be using it in the sense of obligation. This is what we will be using in all the time, in the sense of obligation. Now. What I want to uh, do as a, as, a, as, a, as a reminder and a benefit, okay, is to, um, if you go back to uh, the Logical Progression live session, which was two weeks today, okay, 
two weeks today, um, I introduced this subject and I explained what was the reason why Imam Abu Hanifa, alayhi rahmatullah, he actually uh, decided there was a difference between, um, between why he differentiated between a obligatory action and a wajib action, an action which was slightly lower down. Who can remind me what the actual difference was in technical consequence or definition? Who can actually remind me? Yes. The hadith of wajib is slightly weakened in the, in the sense that the narration, the chain of narration at each generation, the, the, depending on the numbers. So you're explaining the reason. Uh, you're explaining the reason why uh, uh, Abu Hanifa created um, a category or two separate categories based upon the evidences themselves. And you, you mentioned the word weaker, and that's what we're going to explain today via diagram to show that it's not necessarily the word weaker, but it's there are of different levels of certainty. Okay, the issue is certainty. But anyway, we'll come to that. What I want to know though is that what did, uh, if we said all the imams, all the scholars say that wajib means obligation and fard means obligation, that you are rewarded for doing it with the intention as of an act of worship and you are a sinner if you don't do it. A, a punishment which is in the akhirah, not in this dunya, if you don't do it. Yes? That's the definition of what kind of act? An obligation. So what did what did Abu Hanifa then decide? What was the, the definition for wajib then? That's the definition for wajib. What's Abu Hanifa's definition for wajib then? If that's the definition for wajib, what's Abu Hanifa's? Yes, Ibiya. Did you say um, that wajib is something that is a bit more speculative in its nature? So that's the reason why it's a wajib according to Abu Hanifa. The reason that he differentiated between an obligation and a wajib. But what is the actual Definition of a wajib. Yeah. Just uh, you define wajib as those narrations that came via a ahad hadith. Uh, Again, same. This is the same answer I've received from all three of you. You're giving me the reason why Abu Hanifa created a wajib category. We're going to come to that in a second. I want the definition which differs from the normal obligatory definition. Uh, if you do it, you get reward. Yep. You no. About denying the action itself, whether you have to do it or not, is it? I think you said if you deny it, I'm not sure which way around it, but one of them, if you deny it, then you're still a Muslim. But the majority will say if you deny a wajib action, you're a non Muslim. So you tell me, work it out here now using just common sense, which one do you think that would apply to? So I think you say, you know, if you deny it, the majority will say if you deny it. I follow the wajib action, you're not Muslim. Abu Hanifa said, if you deny a wajib action, you're still a Muslim. If you deny a follow that, then you're not Muslim. Correct. Correct. Ultimately, to differentiate between the two, no Hanafi scholar or no one from actually from Islam is ever going to say to you, don't do a wajib. Okay? That's not going to happen. Alright? In fact, the irony, of course, is that in the Hanafi school, they will make even the acts of sunnah like a wajib. Okay, so don't think that just uh, that because they were producing a more uh, flexible definition that they're trying to be easy, uh, necessarily they don't want people to do obligations. It's the exact opposite, in fact. Actually, they want to be more accurate. That's what they want to do. All right? And then what they're saying is that when once we define an act as wajib, 
We are basically, and I told you that we're helping the people that way. We're helping the people because if you if we can put more actions under the category of wajib, then that means that if you get some you know plum who comes along and says you know uh, you know I don't like this action or I don't want to do this action or I don't believe in this action, well if he says that about an obligation like Salatul Fajr which I gave the example of yeah he's out of the deen right if he knows what he's saying and he says that I don't want to pray Fajr it's not obligatory upon me blah 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 okay well then that's it it's all over for the guy it's literally all over whereas if was Abu Hanifa is saying that if we say for a, uh, if we say something is wajib and you were to deny it for one reason or the other, whatever reason, then you're a fool and you'd be punished and all the rest of it. But we wouldn't consider that person to be outside the fold of Islam because he hasn't de- denied something which has been established in the deen with absolute certainty. And that is what we come back down to, the issue of certainty. All right? And I wanted to really illustrate to you why it is that scholars differ over the concept of certainty. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, go uh, go into go into LP. LP. It's got the the, the picture of the LP folder. Yep, and just choose it from there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we have this. Um, uh, two, two fingers on. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. No, it's, it's, just it's it's only in the moving. Oh yeah. Okay. I've got my oh, yeah, so, Okay. Yeah, what is this? Just show me. What? Done? Oh, good, very good. Okay, you know, your hands got barakat in it, bro. Miskin sinning hands, miskin sitting there doing sin. Right, okay, so if you look at this hadith, alright, um, this is a. Uh, do I want to use this one? Actually, I don't want to use this one. Just clear the screen first. Uh, go via. Rubber. That one, yeah? Okay. This entire discussion No no just one hand and just pinch it out. You're with your things, man. That's so big though. That's the problem. Okay, anyway, but this is just this is a good example, then we move on. You can see that. Can you guys make out the name at the top, yeah? Usama bin Zaid, can you see that? No? Okay, hold on. I'm gonna cuss me, what is it? I even had a shower before I came. Huh. Yeah, what? 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 <laughs> yeah, it's as big as it goes. It won't go any bigger. Okay. okay, this doesn't go any bigger. You can't see really, huh? If I tell you the name, can you see the name? If I say to the first one says Usama bin Zayd, and the next one says Amr bin Uthman, and then Ali bin Hussein, and Muhammad bin Shihab, can you? No, you can't tell that. That's okay, alright? Uh, uh, um, um, whoever is... You, you want to annotate on this? 
and uh, yeah, maybe I no, no, yeah, yeah. I want them to see the thing. I do, I do want to. I was also going to say that if you can or you can't, yeah, but if you can also go onto the post it on the forums and people who are online, they can actually access the originals right now, and they, some of them have got it on screens and stuff, so they can you just just post it on one of the postings, post, mm. just just post the three links, and because um, I can carry on here, can't I? Yeah, can. I can carry on on the screen, yeah. So, uh, just give it, okay. yeah, you just carry on. So I just want I just want you to to remember, okay, that we said right that um, this entire discussion is about hadith. The whole reason that there's a difference between wajib according to the Hanafis and wajib according to the rest of the scholars, it all comes down to an issue of hadith. And what did we say? Who can remember what we said? What is it that Abu Hanifa uh, wants, okay, for a fard? And uh, to be a fard, to, uh, to define an action as fard, he wants two conditions. No? In Arabic? It's good. D- definitive, absolute, uh, authentic evidence, which is qatiya thawud, meaning that it is absolutely established, authentically narrated from the Prophet. And second? Nope. Nope, nope. Nope. No. Okay? And absolute no doubt about its indicated meaning. Remember I, I, I said that Dalala comes from Dalla, that the concept of Dalil, that's something which indicates the, the presence of something. So Dalil we know it means evidence, right? And I said, if you look at some footsteps, then they are evidence that someone was there. We don't really care about the footsteps themselves. We follow the footsteps to get to what we're getting to. That's an evidence of something else, right? So, qatiya dalala means that these footsteps are absolutely clear, 100% ascertaining that there is something to be, you know, something going on. The opposite, when we would say, meaning something which is speculative in its authenticity, and speculative in its indicated meaning, then that is not going to, according to Abu Hanifa, give him the confidence, give him the confidence to establish the ruling of obligatory, fard, upon this. So for example, if he was to come to a path, and we've got three, you know how these criminals, they do when they're running on the run. They will walk one direction, and then they'll walk back in the same footsteps, and then they'll go and start again in another direction, right? You never seen that? Or am I just saying a criminal mind extraordinaire? <laughs> That's what you got to do. You walk in, and then you in the same footsteps, you walk back out, mm-hmm. and then you walk back away then on the other direction. So, I mean, so when you come here, you've got like, you know, then you walk back, and then you walk back there. You've got three options from, from the beginning. You've at least slowed the guy down. You've confused him. He's going to have to make a choice now. Is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? Yeah? My God. You're yeah, we see them, man. You see it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're trying to black it, saying that, you know, uh, they're all good. Yeah, I'm saying. So... Uh, uh, that's one and I, and I gave the example I explained this actually two weeks ago I said for example when Allah says ahad, okay, Allah is one there's no yani, debating that ahad means something else this that whatever it means Allah is one this is ab- absolutely dalala, yani, it is absolutely expressly indicating that Allah is one no other possibilities but another ayah might for example be indicating that there could be some possibilities and there would be possible uh, variance in meaning etc etc so whenever Abu Hanifa senses that there's a possibility of doubt, he will not then entertain 
making the act that will be based upon that evidence, which has given him doubt, he will not call that absolutely oblig- obligatory. Does that make sense? Okay? He will basically say, if I've got doubt in the, the basis for this ruling, then I'm not going to express, I'm not going to convey such certainty to the people and say, well, if you deny this, you're a Catholic. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So actually, his approach is a very reasonable one. Okay? I, I need to tell you, of course, it was rejected by the mass majority of the scholars. Absolutely rejected. Okay? And he's alone, actually, when it comes from the fuqaha. If you want to, here and there. But the mass majority of the scholars said that, you know what it is? The concept is correct. If there is speculation in a ruling, then we will not then give a certain ruling based upon that. But they were, were refused to accept the key controversial part of the statement, which is qatiyastabut, meaning whether it has been authentically established from a hadith point of view. Here is what Abu Hanifa said. He said that when you have a hadith, okay, you have different generations. Look at this hadith, okay? So this hadith has been narrated by Usama ibn Zayd. Okay? Right here. This hadith has been narrated by a companion and a single companion, a companion alone. Alright? Now, if we look at his statement, okay, he would have now narrated it to a tabi'i who is Amr ibn Uthman. A tabi'i. Okay? A next generation. He then narrates it to another tabi'i who is Ali ibn Hussein. Okay, who narrates it to Muhammad ibn Shihab? Who do you know who that is? Imam Az-Zuhri, the Imam of Medina, the teacher of, of Rabi'ah, the teacher of Imam Malik. So we now have Atba' al-Tabi'i. And now we then start moving on to the fact that Imam... So, so the key thing here is that you see each generation narrating to a singular generation. So each level is only one, one, and then one. And then at the level of Muhammad ibn Shihab, meaning Imam al-Zuhri, right here, okay, right there, what does he decide to do? He then narrates this to, in this hadith, in, 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 in this narration, starting from the left-hand uh, 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 side, one, two, Ibn Juraj, two, and then Imam Malik, three, and then Ma'amar ibn Rashid, four, and then Yunus, five, and then six, and then seven. Seven of the next generation. Okay? Seven of the next generation. And then, at the next generation after that, it all goes crazy. Yes? You have one, two, three, four, five, six. And I just want to just stop there, just, just indicate. This is where we got to, this is what we're talking about when we get to six, right there. Six now, people. And this is, this is, this is Imam Malik, by the way. Okay? This is Imam Malik, and Imam Malik has now just written it down. You see, Imam Malik has got two options. He can tell his students, and so when he tells his students, for example, he told Abdullah ibn Mubarak, okay, who then is now going to tell his students, okay, and or he can just write it down, and he did. And he wrote it down in the Muwatta of Imam Malik. So he wrote it down in his own book. It's now sealed complete, and now we've got that as a, as a physical copy. And he carried on telling other people, who then carried on telling other people, who then ca- carried on telling other people. And you see, if you go further down by another four generations, we then get to Imam al-Nasai, who is right there, and he then collects it in his book, Sunan al-Kubra. Sunan al-Kubra, which is the Sunnah, the Sunan al-Nasai, as you understand it. Okay? So, you can see that that's how the Hadith comes down. This is a Senate, the different chain. So, just continuing onwards, okay? Seven, eight... 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. 
So at the next generation, there are 15 people that have then uh, uh, heard this hadith. So you can see, starting again from the top, okay? Starting again from the top. Uh, yeah, like that, I think, okay? If we start again from the top, in this generation, there is only one. In this generation, when I say generation, I mean level of people. There's only one narrator. And then another at this, at this level, only one narrator. And then at this level, only one narrator. But then at this level, okay, this level here, you had six or whatever you had. And then at this level here, which is the one underneath, you had 15 or whatever. Is that clear? Now, we said that hadiths are in two categories when it comes to looking at numbers of people. We said either you have hadith ahad or hadith which are called hadith mutawatir. The hadith ahad are those in which the numbers of the narrators are very few. Very, very few. We later then divided hadith ahad into three categories, didn't we? Who can remind me of the three categories that we divided the hadith into? The hadith ahad, how did we, what were the names and how did we define them? Who can remember? Mashhur is a second. Let's start from the beginning. The hadith which are gharib. What did we say hadith gharib it means? What is it? What kind of? It's a, it's a type of hadith ahad. But what does it mean? One. It means strange in its linguistic meaning. And technically? Only in one of the levels is one narrator. In one of the, in any level that you choose, there's only a single narrator. There is only a single narrator. Like here, look at this hadith. Alright? Despite the fact that at the fourth level or the fifth level, you have six or seven, or you have fifteen at the next level, because we only have one at the top, and at the second, and at the third, because we only have one narrator, and I remember what I said to you last week, a hadith is always based upon it. When we, do, when we define and determine the authenticity of a hadith from a numbers point of view, we look at the weakest, weakest link. We look at the weakest link. All right. So the weakest link meaning the smallest width. If you want to look at it from a geographical point of view, if we imagine that width here is determined by telling loads of people, just like I have lots of people here and I tell all of you, then that's, that's width. Whereas if I turn, tell only one person, then that's restricted. Yeah, it's one person. So gharib hadith is only one narrator. The next level is Aziz. Aziz. The next level of hadith ahad is Aziz. What did we define hadith Aziz as? Two to three people. So if, for example, this hadith is not hadith Aziz, all right? Because there actually there's no two to three uh, width in terms of people at any of the levels of this hadith. The third category, mashhur, alright, well known, okay, that's what it means linguistically. Technically though, it means four narrators, four narrators, and some said four to six, but keep to mind four. Again, this hadith is not, for, it doesn't hit mashhur at any level, alright. And then we said, this is now completes the idea of, of, of hadith ahad. Then you have the other category, the second type, which is hadith mutawatir. Hadith mutawatir basically means that at every stage of the hadith, there are so many people narrating it, 
This is if we're talking about it linguistically, uh, 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 um, technically speaking, all right? There's so many people narrating that hadith at each level that it gives you super certainty. Super certainty. Now that doesn't mean that this hadith is weak. It doesn't mean that all ahad hadith are weak. Because actually the mass majority of all hadith are hadith ahad, number one. And the mass majority of all authentic hadith are also hadith ahad, number two. So you have to remember these two points. Don't just think that, you know, just because hadith is not mutawatir. Hadith mutawatir are very few. Very few. Okay, I'll give you an example here of a chain to show you what a hadith mutawatir looks like. Look at this. Okay, this is crazy. I don't know how this is going to work. In fact, it didn't. It just blew it up. Yeah, it's too big. This is the example that I've given in the notes which are on the forum. Okay? I can bring it up on the webpage. It's not a problem. Um, can you bring it up on the webpage? The second one. The, the one with this one? Sorry. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. Bring it up into the main screen so everyone can see it. If you look at this one, this is actually in the notes on the PDF version. Okay? Have a look at this. Have a look at... Take it that way, Shaz. You'll be able to see that they're using little things. If you look to the... Uh, sorry, go to the other way. If you just look on the left-hand side, you know, see, you see BU, that means Bukhari. MU is referring to Muslim in Kitab al-Sawm, in the Book of Fasting. NAS is referring to Ibn Nasa'i. Imam Ibn Khuzayma is narrated there, Ibn Khuzayma there. Down at the bottom is uh, Imam Nasa'i again. Hanbal refers to Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. If you look in the middle there, you have Imam Muslim in the Book of Psalm 164. Above that, you have uh, I am, I'm not sure who's referring to, Ibn Majah, okay? And then so on. So this is just a, 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 a academic references. Um, if you look to, at the top, go to the top, Shaziyab, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and then you've got Imam al-Darami, who has a Sunan al-Darami. And if you come down, just come down there, down, 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 you've got Abdul Razak, who himself has his own collection, who's been collecting that. And then you've got Ibn Abi Shaib, if you come down seven, right down, yeah. Ibn Abi Shaib right there, he has his own Musannaf, his own collection. Some of these hadith narrators, they actually collect the hadith, and they, they actually write it down in their own collections, and that's the end of it. Others, all of them will continue narrating onwards as well. But I just wanted you to see, that some of them are using, like if you look at Ibn Juraj, okay, just go to Ibn Juraj, uh, uh, Shaz, the fourth on the right side. Yep, okay. Look how he has narrated to five different people. He heard this statement and he narrated to five different people. And likewise, you've got so many people. So, I mean, if you just look at that level, you have, I don't know, 20, 30 people. And you go at this level, probably 20, 30 people. Now keep going to the right, Shaz, to show. If you look now, if you, you're seeing, you're seeing some of the major tabi'een, like Ata ibn Abi Rabah, A'mash, and so on and so forth, okay? You're, you're seeing that there's a large number of people, way above Hadith Ahad uh, requirements, okay? At that second generation. And then even at the first generation, meaning at the companions, there are a number of companions. Look at this, go to the right, and now take it up, Shaz, right? Because we've already come now. That's it. Watch, Abu Hurairah is going to come, and now just stop there. Okay, just watch. Abu Huraira, one of his, obviously one of the main narrators from Abu Huraira here is Sa'id ibn Musayyib, of course one of the major imams of Tabi'een. As you can see, at the level of Tabi'een and at Ba'at Tabi'een, you have plenty, 20, 30 people. So there's no problem here. But if you look at the companions, we also have loads. Come down, we have Aisha, we have Ibn Umar, we have 
وهو ابو سعيد الخدري عبد الله بن مسعود نعمان بن بشير and Abdullah bin Umar, Uthman, and, and then you have Ali bin Abi Talib as well, and so on and so forth. So you have so many companions. Now, what's the difference between this narration and the previous one? Well, here's the key. If the chain of narrators is authentic, and every part of the hadith fulfills the conditions of authenticity, then there's no difference with respect to ruling, with, according to the majority of the scholars. There's no difference. Because as long as we are able to say the hadith is authentic, because the hadith fulfills the conditions of authenticity, then we don't mind if there's only one person narrating from one person, narrating from one person, all the way. But what we can definitely say is that we feel a lot more confident about hadith like that, right? It's just there, it looks a lot more. You look at that hadith, look at that as a chain. Right? If you just step back and you look at that, that's one single narration coming from so many sources. One hadith. You see it collected by that many people in that many various geographical locations. Remember I introduced that concept as well in London. I said that it's not just about numbers. It's about where these people are as well. If these people are all spread out all over the world, it wasn't a time where you had mobile phones, you can quickly call the other guy and say, write this down, write it. You can't blag it. In actual fact, if you look at the definition of mutawatir according to some scholars, they said the hadith tawatir, some said actually they use numbers. They said it needs seven. Imam Ghazali said it needs seven at each each generation. Others said it needs 10. Others said it needs 20. Others said it needs another 70. Actually, one of the best de- definitions for mutawatir hadith is that, it's n- that there are enough people there in as many varied places that make it impossible to lie. That make it impossible to, to make up. And that's the whole point of tawatir. That there's a lot of confidence coming through. And basically, basically, what are we saying? We're not saying that it's not possible to have a hadith which is not authentic, okay, if it's ahad. No, the exact opposite. Hadith ahad can and will always be authentic as long as they fulfill the conditions of authenticity. What are these, what are these conditions? You can name the conditions of an authentic hadith for bonus points. Okay, so the narrator needs to have good memory, solid memory. Before that, we'll make that number two. Before that, he needs to be trustworthy, isn't it? There's a difference between having a sound mind, sound memory, okay, and being trustworthy. You can't be a liar, basically. You can't be a blagger. You can't be someone who is someone that we, we doubt his, his deen and so on and so forth. Yes? So he's got to be trustworthy and he's got to be someone who memorizes. Because this is an issue of memorization. So he's got to have a good memory. Also, it's important, the second condition of memory, because you might have someone who has a fabulous memory, but then he starts narrating hadith when he's 80 years old. And he starts to forget things. So then the scholars will look at the hadith and look at the time that he narrated the hadith. And if they see him narrate something early in his life, they'll make it authentic. And if they see a person who is well known in the community, that he became senile, started to forget things, then they will say that, you know what, this person is authentic, he's thiqa, he's narrated from, he's yani, to be uh, respected, but only when, only when he narrates hadith when he was young. When he narrates hadith when he was old, I'm afraid we have to leave him. He has to be taken out of the equation. So those are two, yes? Continue. Say it again? Continue to change, not real, no shared. Sorry. Okay, good. The hadith, the condition number three, okay? 
The narration which is coming via this way, it must have people who are, are trustworthy. It must have people who, are, got good, who have good memory. Number three, the narration itself must not be shav, meaning it must not be odd, meaning it must not contradict something which is more authentic, like the Qur'an, or a well-known mutawatir hadith which is super authentic, that's explaining something very well known. Number of a hadith, suddenly a hadith comes along and says the prayers in the day. Like, I'll give you an example. Imagine that I say that there's a hadith here narrated by. Actually, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of shahid in a minute, okay? Uh, the fourth condition. So, this is you can't contradict the Quran's good. That's the third condition as shahid. Fourth condition. The fourth condi- condition is that it must be musalsal, meaning it must be continuous. There cannot be a break in the in the chain. So we can't have, for example, someone who's narrating 200 years after the Prophet ﷺ completely miss out the tabi'i or the atba'a tabi'i, all right, and suddenly quote from the companion, Abu Huraira, and miss out two generations. There's two breaks in there, or one break in some circumstances. And that break gives us doubt. What happened? Where did he hear that from? Where did he, how did he collect that? Do you understand? So this is not continuous. A chain which is continuous means there's no breaks. You can track each person to the next. And that's a very detailed process. That's the fourth condition so far. And then the fifth condition. The most difficult of all the conditions of an authentic hadith. The fifth condition is that it can have no ilal. Or it can't have an illa. The word illa and plural ilal. This is, I think, the third uh, meaning of the word illa that we are using in this class, right? Normally, you know what we use the word illa for, yes? What is that? Sharia reason. The sharia reason. Allah's intention almost behind an action, yes? And I'm sure that we gave a second reason for it. A second. Yeah. Well, we're talking about hadith. Yeah. Alright, okay, good. So, so I explained it before. The word illa means, uh, and I explained this last time, something who's alil means it's diseased, okay? It's sick. And also, the word illa means something which is a fault, but it's not obvious. It's a hidden fault. So the fifth condition is that it must, have, must not have hidden faults. What's a hidden fault? This is a very difficult area. This is the area of the specialists of hadith. Uh, not just the muhaddithin. This is the area of naqd. This is where we have hadith critics. All right? These are the specialists, like Imam Bukhari, like Imam Adar Qutni, Imam Muslim. <laughs> and that's about it. Yani it's hard work to be of that level. You can say Imam Ahmed, for example. Yani muhaddith is actually not such a difficult thing in terms of level. Sure, you need to know 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 hadith, 500,000, 1 million. But that's a, side, that's a side issue. You could get some pack, yani sit there and go, da, 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 da. and you could probably memorize everything, isn't it? Memory is easy. Okay? Naqd is something completely different. It's that ability to be able to see through what is obvious and see the differences, see things that are hidden. I give an example of that. I'm sure I did. The prescri- I gave the prescription example, didn't I? What were we talking about when I was? Yeah, but what, 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 why? Why did I give that example? What were we talking about? What we just talked about, just generally. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we're just talking generally that that the ulama. They have that special ability and vision to see things that even if it looks right, they just don't feel it's right. And a doctor is a classic example. You'll come and you'll present and, you know, 
uh, you, you're ill and one guy will look at you, you know, his team trainee, GP, he will say to you, yep, you look wonderful, you look great, okay? And I can't find anything. And then you've got this kind of, you know, Gregory House guy will probably kind of, you know, little slap on the top of your head or something and your, your little toe will twitch or something, I don't know. And he'll say, oh, you have... <laughs> you have... Ben... Ben Wilkinson's Yani XYZ remove disease or something like that. I don't know. Huh? He can see things. He's not. Um, it's a whole other level, right? He looks for something crazy that no one else is thinking about. He sees something crazy that no one else is thinking about. I gave the example of a pharmacist, straightforward. That uh, a prescription, all the, all the things will be fulfilled legally. The name, the drug, the signature, and so on and so forth. But a person will look at that and they'll see that everything makes sense. But he'll think, why is it that this has been written in that manner? He wouldn't write the brand name, for example. He wouldn't, uh, uh, the pen is not, yani, you know, uh, strange. Three types of pen being used, blah, 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 blah. It's hidden stuff that only experts can see. So, a hidden fault in an authentic hadith, for example, would be, um, Shaz, if you can bring up the link. I, I, I need it here, though. So, how am I going to do that? What do you want? The link. You know the link? I told you that's too big. Yes, yeah, there. That was a hadith. Oh, you 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 are uh, you are able to. Uh, yeah. Oh, I think you is that there? Yes, I think it is that. Good luck to you, Shaz. I'm going to bring this. My goodness me, Shaz, are you kidding? This is important. This one. Is that the one? This one here. I can't see squashes. Are you kidding? I can't see anything. If that's the link, then if you press the, 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 the buttons, then you should be able to increase the size. That's the one, yeah. Is that the example that you've got? Go across. Oh, that is the previous one. No, it's not that one. Okay, hold on. I'll show you another example, guys. We've got a good one, hold on. This one? Yeah, this one, this one, I got it, okay. Allahu Akbar. See that? You see those fingers? No, I didn't see it. Okay, very good. This is a really interesting example, okay? Now, this chain, okay, this is a classic chain where the Prophet ﷺ narrated, this is a hadith, um, which has been collected by Imam al-Nasai, alright? And this is the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the one who recites Ayat al-Kursi fi dubir salah at the end of every prayer, al-maktuba, obligatory prayer, it, uh, it will, it, uh, nothing will prevent him getting to paradise except death. The one who recites Ayatul Kursi after every obligatory prayer, nothing will prevent him from getting to paradise except death. What this hadith basically means is as long as whilst you're alive, you keep reciting Ayatul Kursi after the obligatory prayer, then you will go to paradise. Okay? You will go. That's what the hadith basically means. It's a guaranteed Jannah. And that's why it's very important, a reminder to myself, a reminder to you all, it's very important that you never ever forget that. Okay? Always. You don't make any other zikr, okay, I get that. But Ayatul Kursi has got to be a bare minimum after every prayer. Once you finish the Assalamu Alaikum 
you know, if you're busy or you're in a rush, whatever, don't forget Ayatul Kursi. It's a guaranteed easy way to paradise. Okay? Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that this hadith, the one that I just told you, is a very famous narration because a number of scholars, the minority, I must say, but a number of scholars consider this hadith to be weak. Alright? This hadith to be weak. And the reason they consider this hadith to be weak is considering this narrator here, his name is right in the middle here. I don't know if I can make that. Yes, there we go. His name is Muhammad ibn Himyar. Alayhi rahmatullah. Okay? This person right here. They consider this person to not be thiqa. Uh, okay? Which is the first condition, meaning trustworthy. They didn't consider him to have the ability to be able to be trusted in narrations and so on, like other imams uh, were. Anyway, the, the correct opinion is that he is trustworthy. Imam al-Bukhari narrates two of his hadith in, a sahih, in the Sahih, in Sahih al-Bukhari itself. So we know that this person is, is trusted. But I just wanted to show you, okay, that if you look at this hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, you have one companion and then a tabi'i, and then you have atba'a tabi'i, Muhammad ibn Himyar, himself narrating. So everything is authentic from here to there to there, and then until we come to Muhammad ibn Himyar. And then he then narrates this hadith to one, two, three, four, five, six of the Salaf. Okay? Who then narrate it, as you can see, to one, two, three, four, five others. And then then that eventually then comes down to people like Imam al-Nasai and Ibn al-Sunni who, who collects this hadith in, in his collection of Amal Yawm al-Layla, which is a very nice book, uh, a book which, which shows all of the actions of the Prophet ﷺ in a day and a night. Okay? Imam al-Tabarani also collected it right there. Okay? This is Imam Tabarani collecting it. This is Imam Ibn al-Sunni collecting it. This is our Imam al-Nasai that we all know uh, famously. Okay, so all of these people, they collected this hadith. This hadith is authentic. I want to now show you what the issues of a chain would be. So if we look at this, if we say that we pick on Muhammad ibn Himyar, okay, right there, okay, if we pick on him, we will say, let me just delete some of these, right. If we look at Muhammad ibn Himyar, he is what we consider, number one, thiqa. He is, he is trustworthy. Number two, he has good memory. Number three, our condition for this hadith to be authentic was? was the third condition? That narration itself cannot be contradicting something which is known by necessity, known by authentic evidence. Does it contradict anything? No. This hadith is not shelved. It doesn't uh, contradict any other hadith. It doesn't contradict any other ayah. That's very good. What's the fourth condition? The hadith is continuous. Okay, then. So let's now look at the let's look at the version collected by Imam Nasai right here. Okay, here he collects it from Muhammad ibn Hassan, who collects it from Hussein, who collects it from Muhammad ibn Himyar. Can you see? It's directly connected. Yes, you can, you can follow that directly to. So we got Nasai. It goes to Muhammad ibn Hassan directly connected via that line. He heard it directly. Who then collected it directly from Hussein? Who then heard it directly from Muhammad ibn Himyar, who then heard it directly from Muhammad ibn Ziyad, who connected up all the way up to the Messenger of Allah, a continuous chain. Is that clear, everybody? So continuity has been established. There's no inqita'ah, there's no break. If there's a break in the hadith, then we have a problem. If there's a break in the hadith, then we have a, a problem. Let's for, say, for example, if the hadith it stops at the companion, what's that break called? If the hadith stops at a companion and the Prophet ﷺ is not mentioned, 
or it's not been narrated from the Prophet ﷺ, what will it be called if it stops right here? If it stops here? A hadith? Nope. Hadith mawquf. Because waqafa, it stopped early basically. And so it's called hadith mawquf, meaning it stopped at the level of the companion. What happens if we, we, we have Muhammad ibn Ziyad and he narrates this hadith directly saying that the Prophet wasallam said? No. There's a break in the chain. Can we see that? There's a break in the chain. Are you happy with that? Yes? The companion has been taken out of the chain. What did we say is a condition for authentic hadith? Continuity. Any break in the chain makes a hadith weak automatically. So this automatically becomes weak. But here's the, here's the, here's the funny part, okay? Not the funny part, here's the interesting part. Muhammad bin Ziyad, he's really confident about this narration. Okay? But he just quotes the Prophet he, he has missed out the companion. What is this type of hadith called? No? This is called a hadith mursal. This is called a hadith mursal. Whenever the companion is taken out of the equation when narrating a hadith, hadith mursal it's called. Hadith mursal are very famous because some of the imams used to consider and use hadith mursal in their fiqh rulings. Okay? In principle, all hadith mursal, are they authentic or weak? Why are they weak? There's a break in the chain. Good. There are, not there are, only one person that his break in the chain when he would cause the break in the chain, that the scholars, not even the scholars, few scholars, Imam Shafi'i is one of them, he would overlook it. He would say, well, you know what? He's not like the rest of the people. Anyone know who that is? No? Anyone know? I'm talking about a tabi'i. We've seen his name already, by the way, in this lesson. Okay? A tabi'i who, when he would quote the Prophet ﷺ directly and would leave out the companion... People, people like Shafi'i would say, well, you know what, it's him, so it's okay. Exception to the rule. Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, okay? Imam of Tabi'een. When he would narrate Hadith Mursal, and he would miss out, a number of the scholars made excuse for him. Shafi'i would say, you know what it is? If he misses out uh, Abu Huraira, he misses out a companion, I can guarantee you that he heard it from him, but he just didn't mention it. Just being quick. Like when I say, you know, the Prophet ﷺ said this. Because I don't want to say to you that so-and-so told me, that Abu Hurairah said to him, that the Prophet ﷺ saw him and said to him, da-da-da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? So Shafi'i made that excuse. He said that if Hassan al-Basri kind of jumps in with a statement like that, then you know that he heard it. Don't worry. But this is controversial. This is controversial. The Muhaddithin are not happy with this kind of statement. Because they know that the people of Hadith are very, very careful when they narrate statements. They're very, very careful because they know that afterwards there's going to be a problem. People are going to say, where's the other narrator? Where's this? Where's that? So they don't want... So in principle, the rule still exists. That when you have a hadith, it must have continuity. It must have continuity all the way. You know, a break in the chain can happen anywhere. Not just at the top. It can happen down in these parts as well. Like, you know, right here, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim, for example, who could be missing? Or for example, Ibrahim ibn al-Ala. Okay, if he was missing, and Amr ibn Ishaq, he narrates this hadith, okay, Amr ibn Ishaq says, I heard, Amr here, he goes, I heard 
that Muhammad ibn Himyar told me, what did he do? He completely cut out my man here. Do you understand? And cutting, and this is called intita'ah. This is a brick in the chain. And that, there's going to be no excuse. No one's going to accept that. They're going to say, hold on, how, why did you go and do that? And then once that happens, then we enter into a whole different category. This leads to the fifth category. You see? Because maybe what will happen, maybe what will happen is that something will, there might be a secret reason. And we cover that in the concept of tadlis. Oh, that was what we were doing. We were doing tadlis when I talked about that example. If Amr ibn Ishaq, Clear it and put it up again. Just press the button. Rubber? Yeah. That's it. And bring up the image again. I'll bring it again, yeah? That's the reason why I didn't do it, because I didn't want it to... Because you couldn't enlarge it again. Right, okay, there we go. Okay, so we have Amr, okay. If he... Okay, let's just choose... Let's choose Musa, okay, right here, okay? Musa ibn Harun, alright? Musa ibn Harun... He heard this hadith from his father. Okay? This is actually his father. Alright? Harun ibn Dawood. Alright? Who then heard from Muhammad ibn Himyar. Now, it has happened and it does happen that some of the narrators of hadith, like Musa, they know that their father becomes weak in hadith. Alright? Because either he always was weak, meaning that his wasn't of the required, you know, uh, uh, quality. Or maybe he hears this hadith, he hears this hadith when his dad is 80 years old or 90 years old, really old and his seen now starts making mistakes. Is that clear? So what he does is he, I'm not saying this is an example, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, okay? He says his father's name knowing that he heard the hadith when his father would not be normally trusted makes it out that he heard the hadith from his father when he was younger, so that people wouldn't doubt his father. So people, so he would say, I heard this when I was young. Actually, he only heard it yesterday. Alright? He heard it yesterday when his father's 85 years old, making mistakes. But he decides to, when he's telling his student, write this hadith down. I heard from my father, and I heard that when, about 30 years ago, for example, that he heard from Muhammad ibn Himyar, who, he, who heard from Muhammad ibn Ziyad, who, and, and it goes like that, yeah? And he does that for one reason and one reason alone. He knows that the hadith is authentic. Because these are good people, they're not criminals. If he's doing it, he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it because he knows the hadith is authentic, he knows that I don't need to create unnecessary drama about this hadith, and he knows if I told the people that my dad was 85 years old, then they're going to ignore the fact that the hadith is authentic and they're going to say, yeah, how can we... Then start talking about his dad, isn't it? The whole discussion is going to be about his dad and, uh, and the hadith has to be rejected and uh, a perfectly good hadith has now gone and been wasted. Does, does that make sense? This is called tadlis. He's hiding a fact for a reason. And there are different types of tadlis, okay? And I'm not saying that's an authentic version of tadlis. I'm just giving like a, a, an example. Now this is what you would call... A hidden fault. Look at the five conditions. It doesn't fit into category one or two or three or four, but number five. From the outside, if you look at this hadith, you say, ah, oh, it's connected. Yeah? All the people are in the books of hadith, the, the, the kutub al-rijal, the books of men, the names, I can go back and see them. They're all authentic. They all had good memory. The hadith is connected. The hadith is not shav. 
and I can't see any obvious faults. You understand? But when someone comes along who is a hadith scholar, naqid, he will look at that and he will be really suspicious. He will say, you know what it is? A number of people used to narrate from Harun ibn Dawood. And a number of those made mistakes and we caught that. And so they will make a note of that, mental note. And then when another narration comes with Harun involved, it's like a flag. You know like when you are in a computer system and you type a name in and the flag comes up. So when they hear him in his narration, they will want to ask this the next question. You heard that, I get it. But did you hear that when he was at this age or that age? Then depending upon the answer, they want to make a decision. Now everyone's not going to be able to do that. You're only going to be able to make that judgment if you have that flagging system. And that is the person who understands their ilm. And this is the most difficult of skills in hadith. The most difficult. And Imam Darqutni, he has a book called Al-Ilal, Kitab Al-Ilal. He has just a book dedicated to all the hidden faults that he could collect. And Sheikh Nasheikh Abdullah Jadir, he started a project which I still don't think he's finished. He was doing the tahqiq, uh, uh, his own commentary and authentication and takhrij of all of the narrations and all of the ilal of Kitab al-Ilal of Imam Darqutni. And he did that, started that about 10 years ago working on that but anyway so i hope that that makes some sense uh, uh, about the idea and i'm going to take some questions okay but i just want to just say what the whole point of this uh, this dars was that if we can ascertain the five conditions of authenticity in a hadith then that hadith is authentic it doesn't matter that there's only one person there one person there one person there six people there five people there it doesn't matter that abu hanifa will say that this hadith is from hadith ahad because here there's a weak point there's a weak point okay no the three imams and in fact all of the muhaddithin and the majority of the scholars of sunnah they will say that as long as this hadith is authentic then we will act upon it in every aspect of our deen in akhlaq in fiqh in aqidah everything and anyone who denies an authentic hadith even if it comes via this way via ahad manner, it will then be a very serious matter. If he denies an authentic hadith, even if it comes by ahad, then we will be very serious upon, we will be very uh, harsh upon that person. Abu Hanifa will say no. If the hadith is ahad, then the consequence of that means that whatever ruling we give based upon that hadith, I'm going to call it wajib, to bring it down from fard. Because I'm, use, I'm saving the word fard for the mutawatir, and I'm going to use wajib for the ahad, and if you deny a wajib, then I'm not going to come down like a ton of bricks upon you. And there's going to be a bit more ease. We'll choose another option about what we're going to decide to do with you and so on and so forth. That's the reason why today we have this difference in uh, the two definitions. And for this class, okay, and I don't want everyone to come back to this again. Okay, never. <laughs> all right. But it's good that everyone actually sees it. All right. Okay. That whenever we use the word wajib from now on, you'd think of nothing other than obligatory. That's the, the position of the majority. That's linguistically, technically, and the majority of the scholars of fiqh, of hadith, of aqidah. Okay, but you need to know that there's a difference out there. And especially there's packs because, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I tell you, you still go home and say, this is wajib and this is, this is faraz and this is wajib. This is sunnat. This is nothing. <laughs> so that's good. All right, so let's take, yeah, let's take some questions. Yeah. Yes. When the missing link is where, and then the top four, say, where there's yes. one. Yes. 
and then if it's further down, say, and there's other chains, what weight is given? Is it, is it only weighting to take into account that there's all these other narrations that go all the way Absolutely. First of all, let's make it very, very clear that just maybe if there's a break in this hadith, doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't another way that this hadith has been narrated with another whole set of chains that would then strengthen this one. This hadith then could therefore be, for example, let me give you an example of, of this hadith. All right, have a look here. If we just were to say for the sake of, of argument that this is Bukhari here, okay? Right here, okay? Bukhari sometimes in Sahih al-Bukhari, he does this. And he just quotes the Prophet ﷺ. In Sahih al-Bukhari. He would just quote the Prophet ﷺ direct. What type of hadith is this called? Hadith Mu'allaq. Okay? This is Ta'liq. Yani this is when Imam Bukhari narrates Ta'liqan. He just scans the entire chain out and quotes the Prophet ﷺ. And he often has a reason for that. That reason differs. And the experts of Bukhari have given a number of reasons. One, he knows that that hadith is authentic and he has given the chain to that hadith elsewhere in another book and he doesn't really want to use it in a primary fashion. He just wants to use it as a secondary evidence. So he just wants to quote it. But he knows the chain. But he doesn't want to make it a part of study. Or number two, he's using it. He doesn't know the chain. He's not confident about it. He doesn't think it deserves to belong as one of the actual hadith in my Sahih al-Bukhari. But you know what? There is a good value in that in the in the text from a from a from, from supporting the meaning of his point. Maybe he's making an argument. Maybe he's trying to persuade the reader in one of his chapter titles that my position is that that you must raise your hands when you are going Allahu Akbar. And you know what it is? I'm going to quote a few hadiths which are not actual full chained, but they're going to support my argument. I'm not going to use it as primary evidence either. And you can go make research upon Mu'allak itself. So I'm saying that that's a massive qata. Look how huge that is. That's taken all out. But there's only. But what I'm saying is that every hadith needs to be taken upon its merits. Where every break is different. Every break, if it, if it misses out the entire chain, that's virtually fatal. Okay? You can't be recovered. Unless he's then going to then bring another chain altogether completely on the side. If you miss out a companion, most of the time, it's not as fatal as having it missing out people at the bottom. Because the level of trustworthiness at these level people is not like the trustworthiness at that level. The ones who are closer to the Prophet ﷺ are also closer to the knowledge. They also have heard narrations from other companions. So sometimes, if I don't mention the, the companion, it's because I heard it from another six companions. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So there's a little bit more leeway given sometimes in, in the books of fiqh. And, and there's a this is a huge science. Mustafa al-Hadith, the science of hadith, is that you could study that for like, I don't know, 10 years. And you would just have a degree in, in mustalah. That's it. You wouldn't be a muhaddith after 10 years. You'd have to work with the books of hadith like every day. Like I tell you, when we, look about, when we talk about muhaddith, all right, we know that Shaykh Abdullah Jadir in this country is a muhaddith. Alright? And he's in Leeds. I can tell you, I've known him for now 15, 20 years nearly. Alright? I can tell you now that that guy does nothing all day except read hadith. 
I mean, I can tell you that for certain, for certainty. He is absolutely doing nothing but is reading hadith, 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 hadith all day. This guy, you ask him about any of these narrators. If I was to go to him and say to him, tell me who Ibrahim ibn al-Ala is. I haven't got a daddy who Ibrahim ibn al-Ala is, by the way. I've got no idea. He will say to you, he is this person, the son of so-and-so. He is the, considered to be authentic by X, weak by Y, blah, blah, blah. He'll give you 15, 20 references to that person and the books and whatever. Memorize everything. He will know exactly everything that there is to know about that person. He will tell you that if so-and-so narrates from him, that's a good sign. If so-and-so narrates from him, that's a sign that is weak. He'll give you a hundred of those people. That requires such a deep knowledge, it's insane. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So this science is massive. And to answer your question, definitely it differs where the break is, level of the break, how many uh, the... Uh, the break is, for example, the breaks of different types. If there's one person missing, it's hadith munqati'ah. Hadith mu'adal, when there's more than one person missing. Hadith mu'allak, when the entire chain is gone. So, all different types. All different types. Salaam alaikum. I just want to ask you that, uh, you know this concept of ahad hadith, and we see that normally when it gets higher up towards the, the chain. Um, isn't it the case that we see that ahad is because that chain has physically remaining and it's possible that at that point in the companion of Tabi'in that other people were narrating it but then it stopped and then they didn't narrate it further for example the hadith of uh, uh, Jibreel or for example say other guys were sitting here you hear, you say something I, we all hear it but I, I narrate it to my son who narrates it to his son but X, Y and Z they don't narrate it to their family or their teachers because they consider it to be so well known exactly so at that point in time it's well known but then 100 years later, somebody said, oh, you know, that hadith is only a hadith. Well, that's an excellent point. It's a very, very good point. Yani, what, what Imran is saying is that even having a single narrator at certain generations, especially higher up, is not an indication of the weakness of a hadith. Right? Um, and it's quite clear, if everyone sees everyone know it, just from a common sense point of view, Everyone doesn't feel the need to tell someone else, but someone's going to go and make that effort. Okay? Sometimes a hadith becomes so well known. Hadith of Inna al Amal bin Niyat is the most famous one of this example. This is a classic gharib hadith, where if you look at the chain, it's all singular people. Yet this is a hadith which could argue, arguably be called hadith mutawatir bil ma'na, or hadith mutawatir in terms of its meaning and understood. But how many other people and how many companions understood it, knew it, referred to it in one way or the other in their teachings, but actually narrated from the Prophet ﷺ word for word exactly, it's actually just a singular hadith. Yet is there a hadith which is more famous? Is there a hadith which is more authentic? Is there a hadith which is more well accepted by the people and nation? No. So not always is just the fact that there is a few number of people at a certain generation in a chain, an indication of weakness or a problem. And that, of course, is the position of the mass majority of scholars. Now. Uh, my second question or point is, you know, as you rightly mentioned, that the, the musalahat and, and the, the science of, of verification of hadith, it developed over a number of years, maybe hundreds of years. And therefore, sometimes, I, I, this is my own observation, is that, as you rightly mentioned, is that these categories of mursal, mulfuf, and and all these things that were developed happened in, in the course of history. Now, when we say something is weak, or, or in, after 20, 14 generations or 15 generations, 
and somebody who's in the third generation or fourth generation is say something who we sometimes I get the impression I get the impression is that we're not fair in it's not the similitude is not the same it's because their concept of weak and our concept of weak or their concept of Hassan and our concept of Hassan is completely different mainly because there's these categories that didn't exist at that time and therefore sometimes when these people write something off as weak other people that are Hanifa or somebody might have considered that as accepting Hassan or Tony else so it's one thing you yeah, so this is also a very good, and I hope that, that online that you're able to pick up those, those uh, comments so to avoid me having to repeat them. But basically, I would summarize my response to that as it is essential that people understand that the, the authentication of hadith and the grading of hadith... Remember, actually, today we weren't really talking about the authentication of hadith. We were talking about the classification of hadith, Yes classifying hadith into either hadith ahad or mutawatir and try to understand. And then we brought the authenticity part into it afterwards. Authenticating of hadith, authentication of hadith is only one aspect of the science of hadith. But this science in itself is a mighty science. And there are a number of parameters. Like Imran mentions, that at the time when we might today now, for example, say that hadith is sahih, meaning authentic, and then hadith is hasan, which is a level down, which is acceptable and a hadith is da'if for example which is weak these if you remember last week what did we talk about we talked about terminology do you remember terminology and numbers remember what we said that, that's right that these phrases that, that, that when a person says that there's four types of tawheed and there's three types of heart and this uh, is a terminology that I give blah 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 the Prophet never ever created these three types of heart or four types of tawheed or hadith hasan sahih, da'if mawdu'a, hadith yani, da'if jiddan, hasan ghayrihi, sayla ghayrihi, all these kind of various categories. But these are the, the, the statements of men who are trying to make things easier for other men who are less endowed with knowledge, trying to make the situation easier for students and for future generations. And once man introduces his own opinion into a science, then it can be correct and it can be incorrect. And that's very important. And some scholars, they agree on terminology and others don't. So when we, for example, see, and this is like a controversial point, okay, that Imam Ahmed, for example, says this hadith is hasan, or this hadith is da'if, we need to ask ourselves, is his hasan and his da'if the same as when we consider a hadith to be hasan and da'if? Is there a possibility, is there a possibility, that when Imam Ahmed said this hadith is da'if, actually in our time, it would be equivalent to, because of the current terminology in our culture, that this hadith actually is hasan and acceptable. And that the word da'if was a way of trying to basically bring it down from super authentic. I.e. his way of, uh, like another scholar might say, you know what, I don't even know there's a second category. Hadith is authentic, sahih, or is da'if. Whereas another scholar will come and say, well hold on, there's about four or five categories in between authentic and weak. If you're not going to make it super authentic, well at least put it into, you know, level three or level 3.5 or something, right? Give it some kind of respect, because it's not, it doesn't have a liar in the chain, does it? Okay, the guy started to forget things here and there, but he never was a, yani, a liar, he never was someone who used to fabricate and so on, which is one of the signs of a fabricated hadith. All right, a fabricated hadith is when you have a liar in the chain who intentionally lies. But if someone, for example, makes a mistake because of memory issues, then we don't go around and say, hadith is fabricated. We'll say the hadith is very weak. So these are terminologies of men. And that's why it's important, as Imam mentions, that we always keep in mind when we're studying hadith and we hear scholars, especially of modern day scholars, okay, who go around stamping hadith week, sahih, uh, uh, you know, day and night, that you need to understand that, that 
there are other scholars. Scholars do differ in their interpretation upon whether hadith is weak or not. All right, that's a human. That's a human call. If I look at this Musa ibn Harun, and I say, you know, I don't think that he's good. Another guy comes and says, I spent time with him. I've checked all his narrations out. I think he is good. Already, we've got two differing opinions. I write down in my book of Rijal, Musa ibn Harun, weak. Don't use him. He is not considered anything when he narrates hadith. And I come across and I say, well, you've got to be kidding me. Musa ibn Harun, Imam, Thiqa, yani, Saduq, everything. He's, he's trustworthy. Take his hadith. Now the students are coming along and seeing these two reference points. That's the two reference points that they're going to use because they weren't alive at that time. Right? Yani, the Sheikh comes today. He's developing his own opinions. We need to make sure that people do that, by the way. I'm a big supporter of hadith revival. That people should come and be confident enough to say, in my opinion, that hadith is weak. But be confident by going back and studying the reasons why X person, Y person, Z person made their statement on that narrator. Look at the reasons given and then come up with your own decision. And then always when you give your opinion, say, I think it's weak. But so-and-so used to think it's authentic because of this reason, that reason. Meaning also these sciences, like fiqh, there's a lot of human opinion in there. And human opinion always has the possibility of being incorrect. And it's very important that we have that, that humility uh, in the science. And people, I think, are dying. I've got a few questions online, just quickly. Okay, yeah, quickly. Um, yeah, uh, which hadith are, uh, are narrated by Imam Bukhari in the books of, uh, like, Adab al-Matabi? Why is a hadith term weak by a majority of scholars? And how is the correct opinion established when there is such a contradiction? Uh, I'm not sure what the question means, but no. I'm going to guess that that question is referring to Al-Adab al mufid ex- exclusively. And what this person is getting confused with is thinking that Imam Bukhari only collected authentic hadith in Al-Adab al mufid He didn't. He never guaranteed Al-Adab al mufid In actual fact, he expresses his own personal opinion that in the books of Adab, this is my, my opinion, that Imam Bukhari in the issue of Adab believes that weak hadith are acceptable to consider as a as a source of, of, of information and useful evidence. Okay. It's not a book of authentic hadith. So yes, there are weak hadith in, in Adab al it's not a problem. How would the expert hadith know that the narrator actually did the police, like when the narrator didn't mention he heard his father uh, narrated the hadith when he was 85 years old? So the question is, how will the naqid, the, the specialist, how will he actually know? He will know by comparing biographical reports from other narrators collecting hadith from the same narrator. They will see when a person travels, for example. If he travels to another country, starts narrating hadith, they will say that he must have heard that hadith from someone. For example, if he goes to Damascus, and this uh, Harun ibn Dawood, for example, is in uh, Hijaz, in Medina, for example. He knows it's only possible that this hadith can be collected when he was in Hijaz. If he knew that he's only collecting hadith 20, 30 years ago when he was in Hijaz, because he hasn't traveled anywhere for the last 30 years then he will know that this hadith was collected at a certain time in his lifestyle. Short answer, they will compute every possible outcome and let it all go around like a computer and work out all of the possible solutions. It's like in a computer today, you do it very easily. All the possible computations, you press a button and work it out. Back then, the human mind would work out all the permutations. Every permutation possible, then they would work out whether there's some kind of error. And also, also a good point. Some of the narrators themselves would say that now don't ask me for hadith now. My memory is not what it used to be. It's not, it's not something shameful. It's not something uh, uh, shameful. Two last names. I always uh, question in terms of Salams. 
طريقه صحيحه. I said uh, you're asking whether you meant Subsayyid ibn Musayyid ibn Hassan al-Basri. Hassan al-Basri is also another tabi'i whose uh, mursalat were considered to be authentic. Well, not even, I won't say authentic. Shafi'i used to respect and other scholars. But what I mean is that in general, all mursal hadith are to be rejected. But Hassan al-Basri, Sa'id ibn Musayyib, Imam al-Zuhri also, some people used to say, these are the people that have got some kind of leeway. But very, very few. And even, like I said, the majority of the scholars refuse even to take it from Hassan and from Sa'id and from all of them. But we can say that their closeness to hadith and sunnah means that we won't throw it immediately out. We'll go back and look at what they're saying and give it some kind of weight. And most of the time when you look at one of the mursalat of Al-Hassan, and this is what someone uh, used to, uh, did a ba- uh, study on, if you look at all of the mursalat of, uh, uh, or marasil I should say, the marasil of, uh, of Hassan al-Basri and Sa'id al-Musayyib, often there is a muttasil chain. Uh, a muttasil chain meaning a continuous chain which is marfu'ah. When we say hadith marfu'a, it means that it is raised to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Meaning that the chain is there. Last thing, as a general statement about Abu Hanifa, uh, Hanifa's wajib versus fadl ruling, is it correct to say that when he used authentic ahad hadith, he said wajib, a step down from fadl ruling? When he used authentic ahad hadith to establish a ruling... He would consider that to be wajib. It can be one way of putting it, yes. That is one way of putting it. I, I don't know, actually it didn't show the it didn't show the hadith. I just saw the chain and it saw a lot of uh, uh, things. Okay guys, so uh, again you can review that specific diagram, the long one in last week's notes. That's on the forum. And these three, four diagrams, if you want to just look at them to get a greater visualization, visualization of the hadith, then you can do that on the forum as well. They're all we there. Post, we post it in the comments. Yeah. It's in the links. In the just a quick one. The categorization of the hadith ahad and hadith mutawadda, is it limited to the three generations? That's it. No, all generations. All generations. Any generation up to wherever it's collected. For example, we see here now that yep. we've got more than, in the, after the fourth three generations, yep. we've got more people. Correct. So is it still considered hadith ahad? So this is the this is the point. Like if you look at this, if you look at this hadith, all right, hold on. What does he want? Do you do that, 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 and then that. If you look at this hadith, oh shut up, man, you're gonna there we go. All right. Okay. Now we could say that this hadith is mutawatir at this level. Would that be correct? Yeah, so okay, at that level, there are plenty of people who narrated it. This whole hadith, though, is it mutawatir? Why? Correct. And what do we do when we look at a hadith? Look at the weakest link, at the thinnest part, the one with the minimum width. So, what we look at, for example, here, well, straight away, that is a hadith mashhur. Four narrators, okay, four collectors. Well, it's not really because that's the books. But if we look at, at this level here, you can see individuals. Yeah? So it's gharib at that level. It's hadith ahad. So a hadith is always looked at its thinnest part to give the final ruling. Even if there's a thousand people at this level, a thousand, we'd have to look at this level. We'd have to look at that level to make their decision on what it is. Okay? So, washing the hands. The... <laughs> <laughs> يا الله جزاكم الله خير سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك شهد الله إلا أنك استغفرك اللهم وأتوب إليك 
السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته